coming up to give a little word this morning. My name is Paula Butler, for those of you that don't know me yet. Growing up in church, my favorite memory was when my father would say, ever head bowed and ever eye closed, because that's when my dad would reach out his hand and take mine, and we would walk to the front door and greet everyone as they left. It's still my favorite thing to do. I just do it different. I walk around and I say good morning to as many of you as I can. I've noticed Johnny and Carol Saunders doing the same thing. They must love y'all too. I know Pastor Daryl gives wonderful sermons that inspire many of us into service while also encouraging our personal walks with Christ. Even this building's pretty awesome, and they have been making it better and better over the years. But I love more because of all of y'all. I cannot wait to wrap my arms around you. I absolutely, oh yeah, love y'all more than you will ever know. The last few months have been pretty difficult for me. I have lost both of my step-parents who have been in my life since I was a kid. My husband was let go from a job he had held for over 17 years, one that we thought he would retire from. But we've also been inc incredibly blessed in the very same few months. We have been loved on greatly by so many wonderful friends that we have found right here at Moore. People have offered to bring us meals, have given us support, and most importantly, prayers were sent and definitely answered. Very quickly, my husband found a better job, one that he loves. And we welcomed our eighth grandchild into our family. We even planned a trip to Cancun to celebrate our 20th anniversary, and we were able to go on it. Although we came back battered and bruised, blessings are abundant in our everyday lives. And I want the very same thing for every one of you, to get more out of more. If you have not made relationships or are not participating in this church, you are missing out on one of the greatest gifts this place has to offer. Fellowship, love, relationships, service, friendships, volunteering, and so much more. You just have to seek it out. I started by volunteering with Jennifer Martin cleaning this church. And I'm not lying. When I'll say I wasn't very fond of some of y'all eating the beloved donuts right here in the sanctuary. <laughs> but it gave me a sense of ownership of this place. I learned the ins and the outs all the while, falling more and more in love with this place. Then I started spending time in intercessory prayer with Jennifer and Lindsay Biggs, which is the perfect way to experience the power of prayer and how God works in our lives through prayer. One Sunday, I had the sisters Carol Van Sickle and Patty Connors pray over me. Patty said she saw me writing, so I started my prayer list. At first, I was just putting my family and those who pe people I was meeting here at church. And then I started putting the, the prayer list on it, which is very, well, well sorry. <laughs> uh -oh. 
I give God full credit for my weight loss. I simply put it on the list and then gave it to God. As a result, I lost over 100 pounds, and I have kept it off over a year this coming November. I still can't wait to add to it. There has been times when he has answered prayers so unbelievably quick, it has blown me away. I can tell you, watching God work never gets old. One day, I took a few things to Axe Community Center to donate, and I ended up serving the seniors lunch with Cha-Cha. She's so inspirational, and she is making a difference in San Jacinto all the way from Oklahoma. She is a part of my daily lives. We have even gone to visit her a few times, and we will go visit her many more. I still love serving there at Axe with Chad every Friday. He's doing amazing things there, and I would encourage anyone who has a desire to serve to speak with him. It is so unbelievably rewarding, and I have fallen in love with the people there. James and I have both served on the altar ministry. We've had our prophecy done, and we've served in the prophecy rooms. This church seriously has so much to offer. I've even spent time in the children's church under Pastor Kim, who is so incredible. She's doing marvelous things with those kids. I was also thrilled to be able to work on a very unexpected project with Matt Limbaugh and Catherine Roach. It was so gratifying, and I was blessed to have been a part of it. I also love Pastor Becky's welcoming committee. The first time I walked up to Moore, I'd only come here because my best friend from high school was getting baptized, Donna, and Chantel ran out the door and wrapped me in one of the biggest hugs I can remember. It was such an inviting experience. Welcoming people as they walk in the doors is a heartwarming opportunity to meet and greet all of Moore. I've noticed Dee Dee, a.k.a. Delinda and Lonnie Flake, eagerly gr greeting everyone they encounter. You can just feel their genuine love for everyone. I can honestly say that our lives has been so much more fulfilling and enriching for becoming members of more. It says in Romans 12, 4 through 5, just as our bodies have many parts and each body has a special function, so is it with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we are all belonging to each other, which I take to mean that if we are not walking within our gifts in the church, we are simply handicapping or robbing the church of who God intends you to be. So if you've missed a Sunday or two and nobody has called to check on you, then I would urge you to integrate yourself and begin to mingle. I love that more is named more because I want more too. If I have missed loving on you, come and find me. James Butler, my husband and I, we always sit on the left side, second row. I sit there as a child. I'm just as attached to my seat as Camilla Johnson is to hers, so you will always find us there. The love that moves around this church is real. Tap into it. Become a part of it. Don't miss out. There is so much more to more. All right, how's everybody? Doing good? Everybody happy? Happy, happy, happy. I love Paula's testimony. Um, she truly does. She, you know, she's an extrovert. It's, real, it's a little easier probably for her than for us introverts to go around and, and uh, meet a lot of people. But um, she's right. You know, probably the greatest thing about this church is the relationships. It's so funny, you never remember sermons you hear 20 years from now, but you sure do remember how you were treated and how you were loved. 
Isn't that the truth? So let's pray before we start and get in God's word. I thank you for your word, God. We hold it up as the highest standard of excellence. We believe it's infallible, that it's profitable for everyday life. We thank, God that, we thank you, God, that it's just as relevant today as it was the day it was written. And so, God, we just open it today in full faith that your Spirit's going to guide us, teach us, illuminate it. I pray for those that are in this building today, God, that your word would go forth and accomplish what your desire is for every single person in this room. Some need healing this morning, God, I ask that you would heal them. Some need, God, a heart change, and I ask that you would change their heart. Some need the hardness around their heart to be broken, and I ask, Lord, that you'd break it. Some are just lonely, God, and I ask that you'd comfort them. And I pray, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been talking about um, who we are as a church. And that's why I asked Paula to uh, come up and give that testimony during this series because she's talking about a lot of great things about this church. It is a great fellowship. And, uh, and who are we? Well, we're eclectic. You know what eclectic means? It means that we're a collection of all different kinds of things and people. All different kinds. And so the question becomes in a church like this, how can we be in fellowship with one another when we don't have anything in common sometimes? Sometimes people's lifestyles are so different than ours, we're just like, man, I don't, I don't know how we could ever be you know, close. I mean, how do we fellowship with one another? How do we get along? Uh, I don't think we're the only church that has this issue, but I don't think a lot of churches have this issue. You know, it, there's, a, there's a saying, birds of a feather flock together. And I think that that's really what you see in most churches everywhere I've been, um, that most churches look like they're the same. Same economic strata, same color of people, same political persuasion, same a lot of things. And the preacher gets up here and he preaches a lot of things you agree with so everybody can say amen and everybody's happy and nobody ever gets uncomfortable. Well, I, I have a certain, I don't know if it's a conviction or a calling, I don't know what you'd call it, but, you know, to me, I, I'm a pastor of a church. To me, a pastor has one responsibility, and the responsibility that I carry is to help you grow in spiritual maturity. Now, let me tell you what a cult leader is. Because some of you are susceptible to cults. A cult leader tells you what to believe. And his goal is to get you to submit to what he's telling you so everyone can be in unity about what he believes. That's a leader of something that you don't want to be a part of. God did not create minions and he did not create robots. And I'm speaking to you today that you would allow me to create an environment, teach sermons that will cause you to seek it out and grow spiritually. I want you to question. I want you to seek it out. I want you to doubt. I want you to go beyond what somebody tells you you agree with. That's how we grow. That's why it's so important that we know who's in our body. It's why it's so important that we hear about different life experiences because we don't want to be just like everyone else. 
But this problem that we have as being an eclectic church, it's not really new. It, it really goes all the way back to the first century. The very first century they had this problem because they had all these people coming into the New, Ch new Testament church, and they were Jews. They were like, these guys, Jews, they, would be, they had been studying the Word of God, the Torah, for years and years, their whole life. And then they had people that were coming in that were absolute pagans that didn't even know anything about the Torah, and they were trying to live their own way. There were people that came in that were Roman soldiers. I mean, people were, were actually witnessing to Roman soldiers. Some of them may have been at the crucifixion of Christ, and now they were coming into the church and sitting in the church, and they were still Roman soldiers. Can you imagine those guys coming up and giving their testimony? He said, that guy killed my aunt. You know? I mean, it's been a problem for years. When God begins to move into society, he doesn't, he doesn't pick and choose just the ones that look like everybody else. He brings it all into one place, and that's what's happened here. And we have the challenge to love. We have a challenge to walk in love with one another. In fact, Peter, who was the leader of the church in the first century, he was, you know, he was like trying to figure it out too. He wrote a couple of books, but he wrote in, in 1 Peter 4, 8, he wrote this. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. Now, who was he talking about? He wasn't talking about you going to the grocery store and saying, God bless you to the guy in the, in the aisle next to you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when you dwell in church, when you go to church, and there's all these different people with all these different lifestyles, and some of it you just don't understand and you really don't know what's going on. He said the only way you can survive is to have fervent love. Yeah. Fervent. That's not, oh, let me give you a sideways hug and smile at you and say, good to see you, brother. You know, glad you're in the house of the Lord. You know, I mean, it's like that, that's not love. Love means you honor them. You respect them, you get to know them, they get to know you, you get involved in each other's lives. That's what it means. Fervent means consistent. Why would he say consistent? Because there's times you don't want to do it. And he said, that's the only way you're going to do this. He said, because love covers a multitude of sin. No, 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 Peter, you don't get it. The goal is to get the sin out of the church. Then we can deal with it. He said, no, the sin's always going to be in the church. Well, it, if, the sin, if the sin doesn't get out of the church and the, and the sinners keep sinning, then we need to get rid of the sinners. And if we do that, we won't have anybody here. <laughs> so the answer is love covers a multitude of sins. That means when you look at somebody, you don't see their sin. You don't see what's wrong with them. That's what you don't go, oh, uh, you know. I'm going to hide my true feelings because we know you're messed up. No, when you look at them, you don't see what's wrong with them. You see how much you love them. You, you love them. This is my granddaughter's 15th birthday. I just want to say... Happy birthday, Chloe. You're a doll. You're beautiful. <laughs> You're starting high school. So sweet. So anyway. Okay. 
Well, Jesus, he, he, he understood this too, and, and he, he knew that the, there was going to be issues in the church. He knew there was going to be issues among different kinds of people coming in and getting together in the church, you know. And he talked about it in a parable. It's a very familiar parable. It's in Luke 18. You know it. You know it well. But, you know, Jesus was saying there's going to be a lot of different folks come into the church, and, and he had this parable to try to explain some of the reason that the church has trouble walking in unity. And here's what he said. Two men went to church. It says temple, really, but let's just say they went to church to pray. That's a worthy endeavor. And one was a religious guy, a Pharisee, a very religious person, very devout, very disciplined person. And the other was a tax collector. And really, that doesn't do it justice because, you know, we don't like the IRS generally, but... You know, it's like they're not the chief of sinners to us. It, so what I like to do when I read Tax Collector is I want to put it in the same understanding that the person that wrote this. And so to me, one of the worst things out there is like a person that traffics people in sex. Someone that steals children and forces them into the sex trade. You know, that's, that to me is horrific. I can't even hardly think about it. So I like to insert those kind of, I think of the, the vilest sinner I can think of and I put it in here because that's really the point that Jesus is making. we got an extremely religious, devout, disciplined person coming to church, and we got one that's the chief of sinners, one that you wouldn't even want to sit next to them, and they're both in church and they've come to pray. And the Pharisee, the religious guy, he stands there and he prays with himself. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even as this guy, this, uh, this sex traffic guy, this tech collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And then the sinner, the tax collector, whoever, stands afar off, wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven, beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this outrageous statement. He says, I tell you that the sinner went to his house justified rather than the religious man. Because everybody that exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone that humbles himself will be exalted. I'm like, man. Jesus is saying these people will end up in church, and sometimes people look at other people and they think, well, they're really messed up. Jesus said there's a reason that the church doesn't come into harmony, unity, and to love, into fervent love for one another, because there's a lot of people in church that want to establish a moral hierarchy. A moral hierarchy. It's like you're the most moral, so you're on top, and then you're second, you're third, and then we look down the list, and we kind of rank people. That's what we do. Jesus said it's a problem. But the most telling thing is one I didn't read, and it's in verse 9, and it's at the beginning of this parable. Jesus has a target audience for this parable. He has a target audience. It's interesting. He's not talking to sinners. He said he, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And these people also despised people that they thought were unrighteous. So Jesus had this target audience in his mind. He said, I'm going to tell you this, and I'm not talking to the sinners. You see, Jesus in his mind, this problem at church is not the sinner's problem. What? 
It's always the sinner's problem. No, no, it's not. He said the problem with, with lack of unity many times is because there's a group of people in church that like to think of themselves as better than someone else. And we always judge from our area of strength. If you've quit smoking, you can look down your nose at smokers. You know, you, we, we always judge, you know, from our area of strength. And this guy's standing there, and I think, how would love made a difference in this, in this scenario? You see, the sinner can love the righteous guy all day long, and the broken people come in this church, they just want to find a way, they just want to find a safe place. They just want to find a place where people can love them, and they can come in, and they can serve God too, and they can love the other people around them. If they don't really know that some of those people are going home and talking trash on them, they don't really know that. And Jesus says, that's the problem. You see, it doesn't matter about love fervently if it's the sinner to the, to the righteous. It only matters when the righteous decide that they can fervently love someone that they think is broken. It's a problem. One of my favorite authors and theologians, actually, is Robert Capon, and he's deceased now, but he's Episcopal. And back, if you're old like me and been a Christian a long time, there used to be a publication called The Wittenberg Door, and it was really great. I enjoyed reading it back in the day, but uh, it's not around anymore. But in 1983, he gave an interview, in this, and it says, you know, an exclusive interview with one of our nation's top theologians, and it's Robert Capon. He's a, he's a great thinker. And he has a take on this parable that I really think is so clear. I love it. And this is what he says. He says, the most outrageous of all parables in the, is the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not as other men. He tells God that he's a good man. And he is. There's no question about it. The Pharisee is the kind of person that every church would be happy to welcome as a member. He tithes. He's not a womanizer. He honors his contracts. Does everything he's supposed to do. He's an honest-to-goodness, no-sham, no-fake, good man. And not only that, he's coming to thank God for being that way, and he's not thanking himself. And he said, and then this other bozo comes in. This tax collector, this, this chief of sinners, this sex trafficker. He, this guy, this tax collector, has been bleeding his own countrymen, on, countrymen dry on a franchise from the Roman government. He's been skimming the cream of the people's milk money for years. Outside's his Cadillac with a case of Chevis Regal in the back and two prostitutes in the front. He looks at his shoe tips and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus announces that this man goes down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Why? It's not because he's humble. That's a cheap interpretation. The Pharisee has religion. And Jesus is trying to point to the futility of religion. He's trying to point out that no one is bound to God because they have a series of chips that can be traded to God or a deck of cards that can be dealt to God because God says, look, don't play with me. You don't have a full deck. There's a free drink on the house for both of you. That's the whole point. They both don't have any cards to play with but the Pharisee doesn't know it, but the publican does. 
and you don't like that scenario, okay, let's bring the publican back after a week of reform. Let's say he stopped drinking expensive scotch. He's donated his drinking money to, his, to the heart fund. Let's say he only has one girl in the seat instead of two. You want God to go? What do you want God to do with this man? Do you want him to look at that publican and say he's a good guy? Why are you so intent on sending the publican back with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket? You see, we do this all the time. Churches all over our city, all over the place, for years have done this very thing. People come into church and they actually look down their nose or think of themselves as better than someone else and they don't realize what a dangerous, dangerous attitude that is. Why do I use the word dangerous? Because Jesus said that that man did not go down to his house justified. He went down to his house at odds with God. Here's a man that went to church for the sole purpose of praying, prayed his great prayer, and goes home, and he's actually worse than when he came. There are people that come to church, and because of the things that are in their heart, and when they look down on other people that are sinners, they go away, actually, they go home worse than they came. What's well, startling? Yes, it's dangerous. It's one of the things... One of the main reasons we lose focus. We have the wrong arguments going on. We have the wrong focus going on. Of course there's sinners in the world. There's tons of sinners in the church. You couldn't have church without sinners. What environment are you trying to create? It doesn't exist. Except in our own moral hierarchy. You know why there's no moral hierarchy in the church? Because there's no one moral. No one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What part of that gives us any leg up on anyone else? No, there's none. There's none. There's nobody more righteous than another. You're not kind of saved and sort of saved and a little bit saved. You don't, you don't come in and you're like, well, I'm 125% saved. You're only 40%. <laughs> what? You know, well, you need to be more Christ-like. Well, you can only be saved or not saved. That's it. Because your righteousness, your holiness is a gift. <laughs> we don't like gifts. We really don't. We would rather get what we, do, you know, what we earn. I'm more disciplined, you know. I quit dancing and drinking and spitting and cussing, and I think that should merit me something, you know. At least I should be a deacon or something around here. <laughs> if you're working for wages, you're in a dangerous spot. This is a free gift business, folks. The bozos get the same. <laughs> At least this, bo this, this bozo did. You see, because we do this, and, and uh, I just want you to hang with me now, because this is what people, I get this all the time. This is clear in God's Word. It's the law. The law is, 
It's the line in the sand. It is absolute. This is the law. And so we go into this and we think we need grace because God's law is absolute. And we as Christians understand that. So when we see someone that's stealing, they need to repent. They need to come under grace. They need God's grace to be right with God. Because we know if we violate God's word one time, we go to hell. That's how absolute God's word is. Black and white. Thou shalt not steal. If you murder, you need grace. Everybody understands that. You commit adultery, you need grace. Everybody knows adultery is wrong. Even people that are lost know adultery is wrong. It's, law, it's wrong. You need grace. You need to live under grace. We get that. We're like, the law is absolute. And when you violate God's law, you have to come under grace or you're going to you know, jeopardize. You, you can go to hell. So the church is good with that. Until we get to some things that we have experienced. And then suddenly we want to move that line of the law. Oh, yeah, we know it says that all divorce, you know, the divorce is a failure and it's, it's wrong, but you don't understand. My, my situation and people say things like, well, did you have biblical grounds? <laughs> and you go, well, yeah, I, I think so. And, well, there you go. Then you're free. Do you not read the book? God said he gave you divorce because your heart's hard, not because it was his heart. You know, we, marriage is not like going steady. It's a violation of God's word. I don't care how many people do it. It's a failure. You can try to twist the line. I love how people do scripture. I heard a teaching on this one time, and it was like, they were talking about Jesus talking about, well, if you didn't, you give your wife a certificate of divorce and, you know, and she goes out and marries into adultery. And they were trying to make some point that the real sin there was that these men weren't given a real certificate of divorce and these women were not truly. I, I thought, just admit you're sinning. <laughs> it's, a, it's a violation of God's word. It's a failure. Quit trying to move the line and just accept the grace that God has to give you. But see, we don't understand grace. As much as I've preached it, and I know you're sick of hearing it, and I'm like, I'd like to get on to something else, but we just don't get this. It blows my mind. It's like gluttony. You not realize that gluttony is a sin? Do you not realize that just eating yourself into the grave is a sin? Well, it's, some people laugh at it. They think it's funny. You don't see anybody crying about that. You don't see anybody just so worried that your church is just falling apart because so many people are... Going to Golden Corral. <laughs> Nothing worse than eating too much, except when you eat too much bad food. That's even another sin. 
whatever. <laughs> it's just that we have all these little lines, and God's law is so absolute, and he never changes. Yesterday, today, or tomorrow, it's not like any difference. And we try to draw these little lines. Well, you know, that gluttony is not hurting it. You know, it's just, I, you know, it's so funny to me how we just, we're, we're people of the book. God's word says it. I believe it. That settles it. Until it's something against you, and you're like, well, you know, you kind of have to take it out of context. You took that out of context. I think back then they were talking about, you know, there's a lot in here about your eating habits. I don't know if you, I don't know why it's a big deal to God, but there's a lot in here about eating habits, you know? He cares about it. Evidently, a lot. And then there's the things we don't think we need grace for. I mean, these things, I just put them over there because I think most people know it's wrong. They just, they know they need God's grace, and most people live in a little bit of humility about these things in their life. But there's all these things that we do that we don't need grace. I eat rare steaks, blood on my plate. I eat that kind of stuff. I mean, do you not realize that you're breaking God's law? And not only that, you're doing it on purpose. And you do it over and over and over again because that's why I like my steaks. Never mind that God said it is a strictly forbidden rule in Leviticus 17. And you go even over here in the New Testament, Acts 15. You know, the church is bringing in all these Gentiles and they were flipping out. The Jews were. And so they said, well, you've got to have a couple of rules. So they gave them a couple of rules. And one of the couple of rules was don't eat blood. New Testament. We eat blood all the time. Some of you don't. But we do this, and we think it doesn't need grace, but it's a violation of the Word of God. You can't pick and choose the Word of God. The Word of God stands. Jesus said not a jot or a tittle would be taken out of the way. It stands forever. And when you do it, it's wrong. That's what it says. False accusations. But my accusations are true. No, it's when you're gossiping, it's a big deal in God's word. Bringing a charge against an elder is a big deal. Yet we do it all the time. We don't even ask forgiveness. We don't even repent. We do it on purpose. Christians annihilating other Christians. Having lustful thoughts. I just don't... I don't hear a lot of people coming up to the altar. Jesus said, if you have lustful thoughts, you, just, you might as well have committed adultery. But never mind that. We don't see anybody up here crying at the altar because they had lustful thoughts. We don't even think it needs grace. Never mind pornography. Whenever, you know, 90% of the people in the, in, the, in the place are doing pornography on a regular basis. No one's making you hit that button. You're just doing it over and over and over a choice of breaking, violating God's word over and over and over, yet you come to church and you look down your nose at somebody that's a sinner? Are you kidding me? God's law moves way over here for you, but not way over there for them. His law. It's like remarriage after divorce. When did that stop being a sin? We, don't, we celebrate it. This is their third marriage. This is their fourth marriage. Maybe they're going to find Mr. Wright this time. 
We celebrate it. Jesus, you know, you know it's funny to me, the master of words, he was the greatest word technician that's ever lived. He could say more in less space than anybody. Never said one word about homosexuality, not one. But he said over and over and over again, if you divorce and you remarry, you're committing adultery. Over and over and over again. We do it all the time, on purpose, repeatedly, and celebrate it in the church. What's happened? Well, it might be a sin when you first do it, but then after you get married, you know. I'm, I've been divorced and remarried, so don't think I'm... I understand. Wendy and I have been together 38 and a half years. You say, oh, well, that couldn't be a sin now. Let me, do, you, do, you, do you read this book? Let me tell you about the law. I just want to tell you about the law. Nehemiah, great man of God. Great man of God. Went back to Jerusalem after being in exile in, in Babylon, Babylon, and he goes back into Jerusalem, and he's going to build the wall around Jerusalem. And he gets there, and one of the things he's grieved in his heart about is all these Jewish men have married these Canaanite women, and they've had these children that are not Jewish. And it grieved him to his heart. They've been married. They'd, had, they'd been married long enough to have kids. They had families. Nehemiah said, put these women away, put these children away, repent and get back to God. That's the law. And they did, all but about three of them. You know why? Because they repented and they got back in line with God's law. Because it's a sin. I've been married 38 and a half years. I have two kids with my first wife. I have two kids with my second wife. If I was going to live according to the law, I would have to put her away and not have anything to do with those children. I, on purpose, don't do that. I know the book. I know the book inside and out. I've made a choice. And in God's law, it's a sin. You can move them a line anywhere you want to. You can make it say whatever you want to do. But I'll tell you this. Jesus said that if you divorce and remarry, that you're living in adultery, and that doesn't have a statute of limitations. Do you understand what I'm saying? The law is the law. It's strict. It's solid. And when we violate it, we need grace. The problem is we don't understand grace. So we try to move the line of the law over so we're on the right side of the fence and we don't have to feel bad about our failures. And this one, you, you do know that the law says you're to give the first 10% of your income to God. God. It doesn't just say you should give it. It says it's God's. And if you don't give it, you're stealing it. That's the law. Runs right down the middle. Either you do it or you don't. And I can guarantee you this place is full of people consciously, absolutely, Violate this every single week. They walk in. They've already made a decision. They're not going to be obedient to that. And they think God's moved the line over in the law. He's moved it way over here because God understands the hardship they're going through. And they, they say, well, God gets it. And so they, they move the law over here. Let me just tell you, the line of the law does not move. God says the first 10% of everything is his. And if you don't give it, 
It not only affects you, it brings a curse on the whole nation, Malachi 3. A curse on the whole nation. That's a big deal. But we purposely do it every week. And then people show up in church and judge other people that they're not righteous? Please. You need grace. I've been a pastor 20 years. I've had people come talk to me about all kinds of ways that we're doing things wrong over the years. I mean, I'm not going to try to be ugly. I just want to tell you, it's, it's, you know, sometimes being a pastor is, you get here a lot of different stuff. I've, I've had lots of people come in and say all kinds of things to me. I have never in my 20 years had anyone come to my office crying, saying, Pastor, I can't stay at that church because you let people that purposely don't tithe minister at the altar. And I know they don't tithe, and you're letting them minister at the altar, and you've brought a curse on our whole church. No one's ever said that to me. No one's ever come to me crying saying, Pastor, I just I can't stay there because I was at a restaurant the other day, and I saw your wife eating a steak that was rare. Notice I put it on her, not me. I'm much too righteous for that. So. You know, nobody's ever said that to me. Nobody's ever done that to me. And so here's my, here's my assumption. I don't think we really care about breaking God's law. I really don't. I don't think we take it serious. I think we do whatever we want to do, and then we just put a stamp on it. That's what I kind of think we do. The only things we really get upset about are things that bother us. That's really the only things we get upset about. That's why you don't hear anything about divorce and remarriage, because we may have been there. So it doesn't really bother us. But you know, if we understood grace, what we would understand is that the law doesn't move. And that every single person in this building and every church in this city and every house in this city has to live under the same thing. And that's you've got to have grace from God every day you live. Every night you go to bed, every morning you get up, you fall on your knees and you say, thank you, God, that you are not giving me what I deserve. Thank you, God, that you haven't brought a curse to my house because I haven't trusted you. Thank you, God, that you've blessed my marriage, even though it's a second or a third or a fourth marriage. Thank you, God, that you extend grace. And you live in that grace. It's so important because that's the only thing that separates us from any religion that's on the face of the earth. But you can't play like grace and then law. You can't try to walk in both worlds. You're going to have to understand that grace is the greatest thing that he gives us because we're all broken and we've all purposely made decisions that are violating God's word, every single one of us. And we do it and we do it and we do it. And God has grace for us. He said where sin abounds, grace much more abounds because he knows us. Romans 8, what the law could not save you because of your brokenness and your flesh. It can't save you. Your flesh won't let it. So God's plan was grace. And grace and more grace and more grace.
even after 38 and a half years, and as much as I love Wendy, I know that it's a gift of God's grace that we have a great marriage. And you know, it wasn't because we did everything right and God somehow erased all the wrong. It's because God said, you know, I'm blessing you and we're, we're full of faith enough to say, thank you, God, and we receive it. We don't expect to be cursed. We expect to be blessed because that's the kind of God he is. But it's a free gift, people, a free gift. You're not working for wages here. You're going to get a gift. We're all covered with God's grace. And I want to end with this. God's grace is not earned. It's his favor that's not earned. We know that. But the second part of something I want to tell you is something you may not know. That grace is God's operational power. Romans 11 says this. The God's grace empowers us to do his will. You, know what? you want to know why so many Christians have a hard time walking in faith? So many Christians have a hard time walking in love, walking in unity. It's because they've never received or understood God's grace. And if you don't understand or operate and know God's grace, you will have a hard time. Because it's the, actually, if you don't have grace, you don't have the power to love. You don't have the power to, to fervently love. You don't have the power to walk in grace with your fellow man. We'll be divided from now on. We've got to receive it and give it. Receive it and give it. Receive it, give it. That's what this is about. The good news is that God's grace extends to everyone. Everyone. There's no exceptions. We all need it every day. So, if you're ministering today, come on up. And, and if you would, just stand up with me. God's so good to us. When we know the magnitude of what it means to violate his law, and then we know the greatness of his grace and his love and how he made a provision while we were still sinners to give us grace. It's it's amazing. Once you get a hold of that, you won't have any trouble praising God during worship time because you know that it's just, but for the grace of God, things could be really different. And so I just want to pray for you today. Maybe, you, maybe you've struggled with feeling like you're better than somebody else, and I just, I just want to pray for you before you get out of here. I don't want you to go home worse than you came. So, Father, I pray for every one of those. You see their heart, just like you saw that Pharisee's heart. You see the hearts. And I pray right now, God, that you would just go right to their heart and let them see themselves in light of your word. I pray for humility to be released in our house today, God, that you would let us walk out of here as humble people, knowing that we're no different than anyone else, no better, no worse, 
And so, God, I just pray that your grace and your love would cover us and that we would never, ever meet a person that we wouldn't be able to give it to. We love you, God. We submit our lives to you. And we just thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I pray, I, I encourage you to come up and get prayer if you need prayer today. Maybe you've struggled with some of this stuff. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never received God's grace. And if you haven't, it's okay. You just need to come up and get prayer. So, not thank you for coming today. We love you. Be blessed.